0: Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multi-generational, and multi-layered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Mukunda Abdulbaki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN, practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Mukunda Abdul-Baki, and today we're blessed to have in the studio with us Dr. Kristen Ryman. Um Kristen, can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name's Kristen Ryman. I'm a family doctor living in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm also a mother of four children, aged 8 to 20. Wow. Yeah, you just turned 20. That happened. And I'm married, <laughs> <laughs> married and a survivor of Lyme disease three times, actually. And um, oh. I think we're going to be talking quite a bit about that tonight.
0: Okay, great. Tell us a little bit about what your life trajectory was looking like before um, the illness and and everything changed.
1: Well, I was on a kind of course for doctoring in a a pretty traditional way. I um, I went to Stanford undergrad and had my first baby at Stanford and then my second baby during med school and took extra time there because I really wanted to have time with my family. And um, I chose a residency in Pennsylvania that would allow me to take additional time as well. So um, I actually did a job share for my uh, family practice residency. So what would have taken three years oh. took me, yeah, pretty weird, right? Like it's not that uh-huh. not that common. But the a, a friend of mine at Stanford really was also going into family practice. She also had a baby. We also were we'd been sort of doing, you know, mommy baby yoga for the last year that we were there. And we said, Hey, let's, let's hatch this plan so that we can kind of match together and be a single person in the match. And so we did this job share thing and it was great. Came to the East coast for that. And, um, you know, spent five plus years doing a three-year residency as a result. And during that time, um, got a tick bite. So, um, I had learned in medical school about Lyme disease. One of the things that had stayed with me from my learnings was that, you know, a subset of people who got Lyme even after treatment seemed to have lingering symptoms, problems down the line such as heart conditions and, you know, chronic joint pain and neurological deficits, but I remember sitting in, in med school thinking, you know, it doesn't sound like we're learning the whole story here. And that's probably because they don't know the whole story, but I tucked that information away. So when I moved out here to Pennsylvania and got it by the first year I was in residency, I like jumped on it. You know, I didn't have a, have a bullseye rash or any symptoms, but I treated myself for four weeks with doxycycline because that's what I learned was the treatment for active Lyme. And I just wanted to kind of like put it, you know, knock it down and, and get rid of any any shadow of a doubt that I might harbor some kind of residual badness. So life went on. I had two more babies out here and um, became faculty. So in just program. to interject, once you took the four weeks of antibiotics,
0: you went back to feeling completely normal. Your energy level was the same. I mean, you're a young mother, so energy having not been in your shoes. Um, energy waxes and wanes anyway, and, and you're mm-hmm. in residency So, you know, because um, to any of our uh, listening audience, you know, residency is, is what you see on Grey's Anatomy. It is all of those things. It is the sleepless nights. It's the, a lot of, um, a lot of seeing a lot of patients just so that we can practice on our own. And so it's a very intense occupation. So just, Did did you feel back to normal after the first tick bite?
1: To be quite honest, I don't remember feeling anything out of the usual after that tick bite. I wasn't treating it because I felt sick. I think I was sort of prophylactically just knocking it out of my system in my mind. And I don't really remember because I had young kids. You know, momnesia was in full force at that point. I was also (laughs) dead, you know, an intern in residency. Now, my residency was kinder and gentler because we designed it that way. So I was working 40 hours over three days and I don't recall getting ill during that time. So life went on. I, you know, I continued through my residency. I had two more kids. I graduated in 2009 and became faculty right away and jumped right in, you know, junior faculty are at high risk for overcommitting themselves. And that definitely happened to me. I mean, I hadn't been full-time Since the first year of med school, before I went part-time in med school, suddenly I was working like five days a week as a new junior faculty, you know, staying late, taking home a lot of responsibility, you know, supervising residents. And the stress level definitely, definitely went up a notch. So fast forward to 2011 you know, my pace hadn't really abated. I was working very intensely. I was, you know, running prenatal groups in the inner city, working at an FQHC with the underserved population there, running acupuncture clinics. And, you know, I loved every bit of it. So it wasn't like I was doing anything I didn't want to do, but um, it was a lot. And I had my fourth baby. So at that point in 2011, I was you know, nursing my, my fourth child, he was a year old, I was you know waking up every two to three hours in the night to nurse him. And you know, I was exhausted. I was waking up every morning feeling like a truck had hit me. I was like, you know, I've heard of fibromyalgia and I have a few patients with it. Like, is this the way it starts? I mean, is that my path here? And mm-hmm. uh, really just feeling like not myself for about a good period of six months or so. And so the next thing that happened was a patient came to me who claimed she had Lyme disease and was very, very sick. She was in her 50s, late 50s, and she had um, about a year's worth of symptoms that were debilitating for her. So she had fevers and chills and night sweats and intermittent pain. She had these red hot feet that would just be like so unbelievably hot that she couldn't wear any shoes on them, even in the wintertime. She lost a ton of weight that she couldn't keep back on. Her brain wasn't working. She had brain fogs, a ton of fear and anxiety and panic. And all of this was brand new for her. I met with her, heard her story and felt her pain a little bit. And at the end of it, she said, listen, I really believe from the last year of researching this and talking to people that I have chronic Lyme and co-infections, Bartonella and Babesia. No doctor believes me. And if you're going to be my doctor, you have to read this first. And she handed me the like three inch stack of internet research, which I read.
0: You're probably the only physician that would have done that, (laughs) but God bless you for
1: it. (laughs) I don't know. You know, it was like, have you ever seen Babe? You know that moment in Babe where like the farmer guesses the weight of the pig by holding it and the guy hands him the pig and he sits there and he said, in that moment, something passed between. Myself, the farmer and the pig, and you know, both <laughs> of their lives would be changed forever. Like it was that moment I received that stack, and I was like, "Oh, I, I will be reading this." And I took it home with me. I was getting on an airplane. That could have been part of it too. I had, I knew I had a six-hour flight. You knew also. you had
0: a kind of uh, <laughs> dedicated time where you weren't uh, going to necessarily have other demands. But good that you read it, so you got more into understanding what her chronic disease was.
1: And not only, not only that, but understanding how much I had learned wrong about Lyme disease, not because I was a poor student. Although, you know, one could argue that there were days right in medical school where I did <laughs> some information, but because there are two schools of thought about Lyme and, and we learned one of them and mm-hmm. they're, they're completely politicized. So there's this whole group of doctors and patient advocates and scientists and researchers um, called the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society that has their own set of guidelines that are evidence-based. They have their own set of conferences. They have their own set of papers. And in medical school, we just learned that they were called the crazy Lyme doctors. And that was the message I got in medical school and residency, And so Mm -hmm. I didn't, I had never really looked at their guidelines or talked to any of those crazy Lyme doctors who, by the way, are some of the smartest and most compassionate humans I've ever met. And they've all been touched by. I would believe you. No one's like, no one takes that path to like become a crazy Lyme doctor because they think it'd be fun to be (laughs) among the marginalized, right? It's like, you take that path because you are touched by it and you have to learn a different way. And so that's what happened to me. (laughs) So I took this stack home. I read it the whole time I was like having palpitations and sweating and like, Oh my God, I learned Lyme wrong. There's all this, there's reams of evidence in the peer reviewed published literature that demonstrate, you know, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease can persist in a knee joint 10 years after someone's had IV ceftriaxone or in dogs five years after a prolonged course of doxycycline or whatever. there's so much out there that doctors So Mm -hmm. it was, it was pretty much horrifying. I was like, I've missed Lyme all over the place in my patients. And I'm pretty sure I'm missing it in myself right now, because chances are, this is not fibromyalgia. This is my Lyme, you know, recurring because my immune systems poor from, you know, everything that's going on in my life.
0: So. Um, Kristen, when did you, after you read the stack of papers and you started taking care of this lady, when did it click for you that what you might have was chronic Lyme primary thing, I think being the, um, overwhelming fatigue.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it was really while I was reading it. I mean, that was part of the, the dawning realization was that all of these symptoms that I was having very likely were just a recurrence of Lyme that had been, you know, temporarily knocked back in my immune system. I mean, what I was reading was that Lyme never really goes away. You know, it becomes part of our background, um, you know, microbiome, all the different Mm -hmm. cells and organisms that are, you know, make up 90% of the cells in our body, Lyme just kind of joins the party um, when you're infected, and a strong, healthy immune system can knock it back, hopefully forever, just like many things that can recur, like, you know, varicella and shingles, for example, when your immune system starts to flag for whatever reason, things can recur. And I was, I was pretty sure that's what was going on, you know, halfway across did you, the country. Did you go
0: concerned. in to get tested or like, did you finally, uh, go and see a doctor yourself about your symptoms? And, and if you did, what, what did they think it was?
1: Well, I didn't initially, um, and partly because what I was learning was that the testing that we use, which is a two-step, kind of like what you do for HIV in terms of like you get titers and then you get something a little more specific, the two-step mm-hmm. testing of titers followed by a Western blot for Lyme disease is really inaccurate. It's not only quite insensitive, missing you know up to 60% of active Lyme. Even if you're testing after the six week, you know the beginning periods of it, it's quite inaccurate for a number of reasons, and we can get into that if if you think your listeners will care. But the bottom line is, it misses most Lyme disease, so it's not a great way to rule in Lyme. It's also not a great way to rule out. I mean, it's it's got a um, it's got a you know you've got these t- these ten different antibodies that you're looking for on the Western blot five of Mm -hmm. which are not even specific for the Lyme spirochete. So while they could indicate that you have a Lyme infection, they also could indicate you've got some spirochetes in your mouth, for example, that are not pathogenic um, and not causing harm and certainly not Lyme. So it's a, it's a really bad test. How would you recommend someone go about getting tested?
0: Because you're basically saying that if I have a constellation of these symptoms, and I may or may not have noticed that I got bit by a tick, but my doctor goes and orders the, the Lyme disease panel and comes back and tells me, well, you don't have Lyme because your Lyme uh, panel is negative. What, what is the next step?
1: Well, the next step is to listen to your body because if your body is telling you there's something not right here and this is true, not just for Lyme, but for anything, you know, whether Mm -hmm. you're tested for thyroid or low vitamin D levels or an infection of some other kind. So Mm -hmm. I would say it's important for people to recognize that just because the testing comes back negative, regardless of the condition, that doesn't mean you should stop entertaining the possibility, especially if everything else is negative. Also, if you don't have a good diagnosis to entertain Um, and there are things that can cause, you know, Ongoing harm like Lyme does. I mean, Lyme can be responsible for all sorts of downstream ill effects. Most people don't die from it. It's more of a simmering, slow growing, kind of progressively debilitating syndrome um, that leaves you really feeling like a member of the Walking Dead.
0: Mm. So, how did you go about finally getting diagnosed? Did you? So, the first time you were bit. You just knew you had been bitten by a tick. You didn't have any symptoms. You didn't get the bullseye rash. And you just took four weeks of doxy. And you did say that you've been bitten three times total. The second time, was this around this time? Like, did you notice, like, did you take your titers? And and is that when you finally made the plunge to say, hey, I have Lyme disease?
1: No, it was actually much more bizarre than that. So I, I spent about a month kind of researching, panicking, feeling very afraid. You know, I don't, I've never been a person who anybody would have described as fearful or fear-based or anxious. And I literally, it's almost like beginning with that paper, you know, reading those, that information, it, it turned me into kind of like a, I almost, I feel like I took on some of my patients' fear actually. And it, mm-hmm. it felt like it had been injected into me, and so I was like staying up late, reading, you know, it, looking through the internet, looking through PubMed, calling these Lyme doctors, getting information, and every bit of information was like non reassuring. In the fact, in, mm-hmm. the, in the sense that it all pointed to, yeah, this is badness. One night my son came in, I'd been up, you know, reading over the same, plus my brain wasn't working very well because I wasn't sleeping. I was feeling like crap. And that was part of it for me too. My brain just got really foggy, um, as a result of all this, um, and the Lyme. And I was, I remember reading through the same paragraph like 14 times and he came in and said, mom, what is going on with you? Like, why are you so, why are you freaking out? Why are you, what are you so afraid of? And I was like, I'm afraid that I have Lyme disease and that's not a good thing. And I'm afraid I'm going to have to wean my baby and get on doxycycline and just deal with this. And I realized in that moment that I did not want to wean my baby at age mm-hmm. one off of breast milk, just so I could entertain this fear-based kind of crazy feeling notion. And I remember saying to myself, you know what, maybe I just need another tick bite. And three days later, in the middle <laughs> of November, <laughs> I kid you not, I pulled a tiny, you know, pin size deer tick off of my butt in the middle of the night while nursing my baby. And I was like, Oh, there it is. Two days later, I had a bullseye.
0: And so you got, you know, every, you got everything really, you asked
1: for. I got everything that I'd asked for. So be careful what you ask for people. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I basically marched into my, to my family practice, which is the, the center where I was teaching residents and, you know, all my colleagues. And I was like, listen, here's how it's going to go down. You're mm-hmm. going to write me a script for double dose doxy with six refills so that I can treat the sinks. What I'd been learning from ILADS was, well, you treat it as long as you need to treat it to get symptoms to go away and then some, because you want to capture a couple life cycles of the bacterium. So it's, it's like a three-week, three to four-week life cycle. So every three to four weeks, this like slow growing pathogen kind of wakes up. Yawns, stretches starts making babies and that's when your immune system can kill it that's when the antibiotics can kill it so i my plan was i'm getting on double dose doxy because that was what i had read was the dose that was appropriate taking this thing till it knocks it back and i feel like a rock star again and then i'm taking it for another six to eight weeks that was my plan okay and i guess i went in there like a train because they were like okay you know and i did (laughs) get i did ask they were like can we at least test you i'm like fine go ahead but i'm not I'm not, I don't, it's not changing my management. So they tested me, they did the two-step test. I did not come back positive for Lyme. I came back positive for Rickettsia. So Rocky Mountain spotted fever, not in the Rockies by the way. Um, and, um, and the other co-infections didn't show up. Although later I, I had different kinds of testing that have indicated both Lyme, Bartonella, Babesia, Rickettsia, Mycoplasma, Ehrlichia were all present. Um, but that came much later. So yeah, I basically like got on full court press antibiotics, which is what I'd been learning to do from ILADS and did that.
0: Okay. When did it, when did you start feeling better? How long did it take for you to uh, start feeling more like Kristen again?
1: Well, I started feeling better within a month. You know, I, I, at that point I was sleeping 12 hours a night, you know, febrile every night with shaking chills. I had strange neurological feelings in my right jaw. I had pain in my left toe. I had really terrible pain in my left thumb, like a stabbing knife in my thumb that would come on, feel like my hand was being severed and two seconds later would be completely gone. It was totally bizarre. And then the thing mm-hmm. I didn't provoke it, I it didn't necessarily provoke it the next time. So Lyme is just very tricky. It's a shape-shifting kind of thing. Sometimes one joint hurts, sometimes another joint hurts. doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's pretty classic presentation. Um, and then, the, and then of course, the, the the brain fog was just incredible. I mean, incredible. I, I was like, you know, I don't really want to be a doctor anymore if this is how I have to feel, but I'm not even sure I can. Like, I'm not even sure I'm safe mm-hmm. to get a doctor. Because my brain's not working, I can't even do simple math. You know, I couldn't even calculate the tip in the restaurant. And so, one thing I want you to hear: how did there, that you? How
0: did that make you feel when you're at this point? You're what 38, 40, and you're losing the stuff that makes you you because you're you're losing your your memory, your 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 mind, basically. If, you know, just if, if simple calculations did. Uh, were were you able to convey these things to your husband did you suffer any with depression at this point or just tell us a little bit about how intense that was cuz now that you're over it it you know you can be kind of very clinical about the way you you know the things that you weren't able to do but i just know like in certain situations like just you know as a side like I've always said to my mom, okay, like when you get old, you have to stop driving. So, but what old means keeps pushing. So she's like 70 something. And now I understand that her ability to drive, if I took that away, gosh, that would take everything away. That would take away her independence and everything else. So when you're kind of a young woman who's a very accomplished woman, Yale and Stanford, some of the best universities in the world, and then you're
1: not calculating a 15% tip. Tell us what that feels like. Well, it was terrifying. I feel like crying just hearing you lay it out that way because it's exactly what it was and I it was there was a lot of grief, but I think I think the grief was really overshadowed by the terror you know, because the terror was about, I'm not going to be able to meet my obligations to my patients, to myself, to my soul, to my husband, to my kids. Like I'm never, I'm not going to be able to jump on a trampoline again with my daughter. You know, what, what does this mean for me? I'm not going to be able to, to function as a partner in this relationship. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. that wasn't, I was sick during that time, but believe it or not, I was going to work. So I would get home at, six or seven at night from working, you know, 10 or 12 hours, because we were at that point, the FQHC wasn't an FQHC yet. It was a kind of like a startup in the middle of the inner city where everybody was working overtime and the staff turnover was happening, you know, every six months, like three quarters of the staff would turn over. It was very stressful. Mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. a couple of interpersonal things that had gone on that year that I kind of somehow got, I mean, I'm, I don't usually end up in the middle of like interpersonal squabbles. I kind of get along with everybody, but for whatever reason, I'd kind of been targeted and, and I felt very persecuted and not mm-hmm. only that, not only that Makunda, but I think as I look back on it, the biggest piece for me was I am learning things that I can't unlearn. And I don't think mm. this new set of information makes me very welcome in medicine.
0: You know, I was, yeah, as you said before, no that. one, no one would set out to be marginalized. I, I like what you said. So that sometimes, and changing any institution is hard. It It is um, an immense undertaking and um, you know, and And that's that's what's required, but you know we learn things a certain way, and that's the way it sticks with us and it does sometimes take that one patient or so i you know I choose to believe that God has a hand in it also as far as humbling us, and maybe you know you had to walk in in that situation um on a much lesser degree i you know I had two Uh, children vaginally. And I just knew I was, uh, the third one was going to be vaginal. And then I ended up in a C-section and I just was like, it was the right thing to do. There was no way around it, but Mm -hmm. I still felt a little crushed, but now it's my story. Like I can now explain to all of my patients that I've done it both ways like so and so i think that also just just being human and being able to relate to people in a human way as opposed to i'm your doctor and you're the patient you know just completely a paternalistic way um these incidences these things that make us completely fallible and and just human is is i think so necessary in in certain ways but so you went through that difficult time and it certainly I began to read your book and, and that you definitely thank your, your children and your husband because with working those 10 hour and 12 hour days where you weren't able to barely care for yourself, you didn't care for them. You know, you could not care for them also just because of the intense weakness and fatigue.
1: Yeah. And believe it or not, you know, those three months were hard and I thought that was going to be my Lyme story. You know, I thought, wow, I really, I'm, look at me, you know, I'm learning what I need to learn to go be an effective doctor for people who, who are marginalized and, you know, frankly, gaslighted by their doctors quite a bit because their labs don't match their symptoms. And I can now be an advocate for them knowing what I know. And it wasn't the end of it. And it actually mm-hmm. wasn't even the worst of it.
0: So tell us a little bit about what happened next or kind of you, you took the, uh, you said you were going to take it for like, what, six months? Or how long did you take that second course of antibiotics when you were doing the double doxy?
1: I went from November of 2011 until mid-February. So three, about three and a half months. I basically went for two months till symptoms abated or two and a half months and then another extra for, I think I might've cheated and gone four weeks. I said, well, I've definitely outlived one life cycle. I'm good. So I was just tired of it. You know, I'd had like some side effects from the doxycycline. It just felt like poison to me. And, um, I tend not to like to take drugs. Like I like to use more natural things. I always have a cadre of, you know, herbalists, puncturists, and homeopaths that I always consult for minor things in my family, or I did at that time. And I didn't like that I was on those drugs, but definitely did get me better. And I felt better after about three months. And then two months later, no, two weeks later, I woke up one morning with all of my symptoms. And it's weird because. During the whole episode of of that illness, there had never been a day where I'd felt every single symptom at once. It kind of moved around, but I was fatigued. I was foggy again. I had a fever. All my joints that had been bothering me hurt. My zingy zingy nerve stuff was happening. You know, all, my neck was stiff. I was like, "Oh my god, this is like ten times worse because everything is hurting now." I went to see a chiropractor. Because a friend, I called a friend of mine. He was like, Oh my God, for God's sake, come to my chiropractor. He'll fix you up. So I went to, I drove an hour to see him. So I was kind of going there as the last ditch, like, let's see what the chiropractor could do. But I'm definitely getting on like a ton of antibiotics on my way home. Uh-huh. And I come there, and you know, as many different alternative practitioners are, he was quite holistic and he asked me all sorts of questions. And he, you know, I told him my life story and he, took some sort of cattle prod and did some stuff to my neck and my back and my lips. (laughs) And I I just went with it. You know, I'm like, look, do what you will. And remarkably after that treatment that night I drove home and I didn't want the antibiotics anymore. I was like, I, all my symptoms were still there, but my fear was, Uh my fear was better. I was like, I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm going to be more Mm -hmm. measured about this. I've been reading a lot about herbs. I've been reading a lot about other things. I'm not going to go nuts on this. Mm -hmm. I got home and I went to bed. And I woke up in the morning and all of the symptoms were completely gone, except I had one brand new one. And that was, I had a ripping sciatic nerve pain on the right side of my butt, from my butt to my heel and on fire. And that became the near death experience Lyme story. Like that was my pain for about two and a half years. So such, such intense pain that it like woke you up from sleep? Well, the interesting thing about it was that when I was lying flat on my back, I had no pain at all. The moment I sat up or stood up, I was in 10 out of 10 pain. Wow. So that's how it went down. And the only thing that really changed over the next year or or two was that the frequency with which like the, the length of time I could be upright before I would experience that 10 out of 10 pain extended. So initially I couldn't be upright at all for months and months. I lay in my bed for three months. I lost 30 pounds. Wow. I you know, was so weak. I couldn't pick up my child. I obviously couldn't hold him because I couldn't be upright. Um, and well, I at
0: this point with this type of severe m- malaise and weakness, you didn't go to the doctor to, um, get some type of blood test at that point. Like, I mean that like, what were you, you were still thinking this is chronic Lyme and
1: what No, what were you actually not at all. I totally went to the doctor. I was like, this is clearly sciatic nerve pain. I probably have a bulging disc. I'd actually had a bulging disc when I was 18 and had surgery for that. Um, oh, a year okay. out of My freshman year. So it was very familiar to me. It was on the other side of my spine, but in retrospect, it did not behave like a bulging disc. I did get an MRI, I got an MRI within a week. I mean, I wobbled to work with, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maximal doses of of ibuprofen for about a week. And then I lay in my bed at home. She ended up in the hospital for a week um, where I got an epidural steroid injection. And, you know, the MRI had showed a big bulging disc, but it was, it was, it was the most, it was the craziest experience of my life because I was in unremitting pain despite what they did in the hospital. I couldn't get comfortable. I ended up with like a big heating pad burn on my boob because I had my heating pad on next to the ice pack. You know, I was, oh, gosh. I was on a dilated PCA. I mean, it was insanity. Nothing, nothing worked.
0: Nothing I don't, I barely remember
1: that. I remember, I don't remember that time. It was like so chaotic and so intense. I was like out of body. So yeah, I had the whole full court press there from Western medicine. I was like on the phone every day to the crazy Lyme doctor I'd connected with saying, listen, if they're going to put <laughs> steroids in my back, how, what kind of antibiotics do I have to have? And for how long with a pick line before I should let those steroids go in there and suppress my immune system. I was like managing all this stuff without any recollection of it because I was on all these drugs that of course made my brain not work. But it was people around me were like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that time because you were insane. I was like, yeah, I don't remember it. (laughs) You don't remember. So there's, there's two years of your life that you, two and
0: a half years of your life that you have limited memory of because of the intense pain and then the medicine the pain medicine and the antibiotics and just overall brain fog.
1: Well, strange the brain fog was not as much of an issue during this second, you know, maybe I would call it Lyme episode 2B, you know. The mm-hmm. the 2A was pretty intense and then my brain was not working. During that time the brain was not working because I was on dilotide and I was on, you know, You know, I was on fentanyl patches and I was all sorts of crazy shit, you know. And And none of those, none of those helped. The pain was still there. Did not touch it unless I was lying flat on my back. I was even like, I'm going to have to take a new career that only involves, involves me lying on my back. shouldn't Because I have to be lying down and then I'm out of pain. It was bizarre. Like I would be, I would literally be, you know, as I, as I progressed and eventually became more upright, I would have to drop to the ground and lie on my back intermittently you know 20 times throughout the day in public like in the grocery store in the parking lot in the hospital wow
0: It was, so it just was the lying on your back intermittently would kind of give you enough strength pain relief whatever to get out of the grocery store and then drive home or you just yeah, needed sure. that momentary break
1: It was like a reset button. I mean, I would, the pain would build and build till it was unbearable. I would lie down instantly. The pain would be gone and it would take about five minutes to reset things. And then I would be able to get up again.
0: And what were you
1: diagnosed with at this point? What was the working diagnosis? Did you have the bulging disc surgery, the discectomy? Well, that was a funny story. So no, I didn't. So in the hospital, I was very against it because I just, I was like, this is too soon in my course to have to cut me, you know, it's a surgery. The surgeon was very willing to do it. Well, interestingly enough, about six months later, I was still in excruciating pain, whenever upright. And I went back to him and said, listen, I'm ready for you to take that disc out. And he said, I'm not going to do that. And I was Hmm. like, I'm sorry, aren't you the surgeon? And he said, yeah, (laughs) Kristen, I'm here to help you. And I Mm -hmm. said, I'm sorry, come again, because I'm here for your help as a surgeon. (laughs) And he just kept repeating (laughs) I'm here to help you. I think he was, honestly, I felt like he was possessed by like my guardian angels or something because he doesn't remember the (laughs) conversation. It's totally bizarre. I saw him in a swim meet a few years later. I was like, remember that weird thing where you refused to operate on me? He's like, no, I wanted to cut you in the hospital. I'm like, yeah. Remember when I came back and saw you in your office and you just kept saying, I'm here to help you. And you're like, he's like, no, I don't remember that. So (laughs) weird. So weird. Very weird. Like some kind so of. So you had, a, you definitely had some guardian
0: angels protecting you because I would think, you know, knowing what we know about um, how our body reacts to the month that any surgery is. I mean, even uh, a surgery like you know a C-section where I'm delivering someone's baby, cutting the skin, the adrenaline, the endorphins, the the inflammation, all of these uh, responses that our body is having. Um, it could have meant the end for you because uh, we don't really think that in the end that removing the disc was what the issue was so let's get over the hump let's find out how you were finally able to heal
1: well I think that there was a pivotal moment that came for me and I was um it was probably a three or four weeks after I had been discharged from the hospital at that point I was still on you know, Valium and a fentanyl patch and, you know, 10 different herbs that, that had been prescribed by the crazy Lyme doctor and some antibiotics and Flexeril. Like, you know, I was on everything. And yeah. um, I, I had gone to a homeopath just sort of as socially as for a conversation, this family doc homeopath in my neighborhood who I was, had been getting to know before I got sick. And I went to her place and um, she said, listen, let me see you. Let me, let me, let me just see you come see me. And I'd never been to a homeopath formally. And so I, I hung out with her and I told her my whole story and I explained to her what was going on. And she was like, Great. Well, you've, you know, you've told me enough. I know what your remedy is. I'm gonna go whip it up in my kitchen. So she bustles off. And I just lay on her couch, like kind of huddled and shivering and like a shell. I felt like a shell of me. Came back in and she goes, Okay, I figured out um what your remedy is. Here it is, you know how to take it. Text me tomorrow, let me know how your pain is. And I was like, my pain, like my pain isn't even the biggest part of this. And she said, Uh what's the biggest part of this poor woman? I'd spent like an hour bending her ear already. And she sat down again and like got in it again. And I was like, well, I feel like I'm dying. Uh I, I feel like my body is trying to die. And what I hadn't told her was that a week before I'd come down for dinner. And my husband was like, yay, mommy's downstairs for dinner. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, "What are you talking about? You haven't been downstairs for a meal in 5 weeks." And I was like, "You what? had noticed this?" "No." I was like, "Oh my god. I you guys you guys must have thought Mommy was like upstairs dying in her bed or something." And like everybody nodded and looked down at their plate. And wow. Like, "Oh my god." And I was about to turn 42. My mom died when she was 42. And I oh. remember as a kid going, well, I guess that's what you do. You have four kids and you die at 42 kind of subconsciously, right? Like not really making an active plan, but then I'd had my own kids and I was like, well, clearly that's not my fate, right? Like I have my own kids. I have my own life. That's not going to be my fate. That was a fluke cancer she had. That's super rare. Only 12 people in the world had had it. It's not going to be me. But suddenly yeah. I realized like, Oh my God. And then I was like, you guys, come on. You didn't really think mommy was upstairs dying in her bed and they all like Look down and like, yeah. And I was like, holy shit. I've, I'm like, this is like me exiting the picture. Like they're already processing my death. So I told her this and she goes, well, which is it? Are you trying to live or are you trying to die? Because it makes every bit of difference in terms of how I support you on this journey. Your mom had her journey and you're on your journey. Text me tomorrow and let me know what your choice is. And I was like, oh, my God, I will. Mm-hmm, so my mm-hmm. husband picked me up that night. I mean, he picked me up because I wasn't driving, right? Everyone was driving me everywhere. So he picks me up and I told him the story. And he's like, do me a favor and text me your answer as well. It's <laughs> like, oh, my <laughs> God, you poor man. No, it's, it's, it's amazing because
0: this story just, I mean, you, your life and this journey is, um, you know, it highlights so much of that every day really is a choice that you have to really want to live every day. And certainly we certainly take our health for granted when everything's going well, but I've certainly taken care of patients where it really just seemed like they had given up on life and, and to know little voices in our head where you said, yeah, you know, in no logical fashion did you really think that um life expectancy for a woman in America would be have four kids and die at forty two but even though that was not the logical thought that you were having, it still was there because it was a past experience it was something that happened to your mom and then your body's giving up on you,
1: yeah, it really did feel yeah. that way through it felt like I had to like. Talk myself into taking a breath, like it wasn't natural to be breathing anymore. You know, I, yeah. I my body, and at that point, I'd lost thirty pounds. I mean, I looked like my mom looked when she was dying. She, I was like thirty pounds down. I was gaunt. I smelled like my mom when she was dying of cancer. I mean, it was oh like, it was eerie. You know, she died on Easter Sunday at forty two, and the the Easter be- the, the Easter that passed happened like the week before I went to this homeopath, and I remember lying on a, on in my husband's mother's bed. I went to, I, you know, I went out to the Easter celebrations with them. It was the first time I'd been out of the house and I, you know, got to that to their house and all I could do was lie in their bed, crying and sleeping and crying and sleeping and crying. And when I got up and walked out of that room and passed myself in the mirror, I thought I was seeing my mom. I mean, it was, it was just that, that real, you know, that's what it really felt like.
0: So you had all of these images and feelings and then you had the meeting with the homeopath and I think all the listeners know that you texted back that you wanted to live um, since that's like uh, about eight years ago. Right.
1: Yeah. So the upshot is here I am. Right. So something made the choice. I, I would love to say that, you know, I felt inspired to stick around and do my part and live life to its fullest. And it was a no brainer for me. Which is a funny expression, because in the end, it was a no brainer for me, like my head did not participate. So I went to bed. Mm-hmm. And I lay in bed doing what I do to make any difficult decision, which is that I, I sort of imagine myself taking both paths, right. And I imagine, uh-huh. well, okay, well, what if I, what if I choose to die? And I had no emotion, like typically the emotion that comes when I have a thought is what tells me where you know, I'm on the right path or not. And I had no emotion. I was just like, yeah, if I die, I die. Like my kids have already processed that. My husband will get a nice young wife and, you know, we'll be in, we'll be in touch through dreams and Ouija boards or whatever. Like, but it'll be fine. <laughs> and, um, Had, had you no-
0: because your body gave up on you like it did, is that why it was so, uh, easy to kind of be matter of fact about it, because again, you're 42, um, you know, living in America, like, and is it just because it was just so much pain that you were in and both mental and physical and spiritual pain that made it kind of like, uh, a whatever type of decision. Like it, cause I, I did think you were going to be like passionately, I want to live, but you're saying that you lied in bed that night and was somewhat apathetic.
1: I, I think that's exactly what happened. And then I, so I said, well, that's interesting that I have no emotion, right? I figured it'd be some strong emotion. So then I thought, well, or I could live, I could stick around. And again, I didn't have a feeling, you know, and feelings are often what I rely on when I know I'm on the right track. Rather, I had a very clear knowing. And the knowing said this, if you are going to live, you are not going to live being fearful. You're not going to live, you know, running around checking to see if anyone's scattering kindling behind you because you're going to be burned at the stake for being a crazy Lyme doctor, right? You're going to be... You're going you're gonna to birth yourself anew as in whatever doctor you're going to be, and you're going to be that. And you're only living for love and bliss and jumping on trampolines with your daughter and, you know, holding your grandbabies and things that bring, bring love into your world and the larger world and also may, and save the planet. Like, that's it. Like, you're not sticking around for any bullshit. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> not no emotion, just like here are the terms, you know, that's what sort of felt laid out in front of me. I was like, okay, well I don't know what to think about that. I'm going to bed. So I woke up in the morning and I said, okay, I don't have a feeling, which is again, what I used to relying on. And I said, I'm going to do my little thought experiment again. And I went through the same thing, same exact terms, both sides. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but suddenly I was out of bed and I was like, what, how am I out of bed? Oh, my body is out of bed. I'm walking downstairs. This is interesting. I'm walking into the basement where we have an endless pool and I'm actually now swimming in that pool. How did I get here? Wow. Interesting. So I just sort of became like the Emersonian eyeball, like witnessing my day as it unfolded. Mm-hmm. It, it included like having breakfast in the kitchen, which was new. It included mm-hmm. you know, bouncing around town and getting, you know, taking a half an hour to go two miles to the hot water therapy where I'd been going for a couple of weeks and came back from that. And I, rather than going in the house, I walked to the garden and I sat down in the garden and that's when I like woke up and I said, wow, this is a weird day. Here I am in the garden and holy cow, the red bud is blooming, which means it's spring. Last time I was in the garden was the fall. So I texted the homeopath and I said, I don't know if this is a choice, but my body seems to be indicating that it wants to live.
0: And she wrote back, (laughs)
1: okay, good job. Good choice. We'll be in touch. And so that's that's how my, did you take from any of the medicine she gave you the night before? Oh yeah. I took all that stuff. I took all the homeopathy. Okay. Yeah. So it was weird. I felt like the pain had not changed at all, which was my main symptom at that point. 10 out of 10 pain when I was anything except lying down in my bed, but the suffering was gone.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and the anxiety about who am I becoming, that was all just gone. The second I'd asked the question and gotten my terms, and I guess my body's deciding to live, I'm like, okay, those are the terms. I guess I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be upset. I'm just going to lie down when I'm eight. And that's what I did for another two years.
0: Oh, so just making the decision, it wasn't um, a dramatic, you know, the scales fell off your eyes and now you're living. It's still
1: took another two years to get back to health? I feel like it took another two years to fully inhabit my body and to definitely to get back to health. And about three years later was the first time I was walking with a friend from med school at her property. And she said, how is your back? Like, how's your pain? And I was like, oh my God, I haven't thought about my back in about two months. I think it's better. Like I'm all the way better. (laughs) But it was, I stopped... (laughs) You know, the no brainer, I've never really thought about that term in the conjunction of the story, but like, it really became like my brain stopped being the thing I relied on to determine what Mm -hmm. was going on and what it meant. You know, part of the suffering was just asking, what does this all mean? Why am I still lying on my back in the grocery store, you know, six months into this? Like I've already, I've done all this deep inner work. I've done all this spiritual work, taking all the herbs. Like, why am I still suffering? And the minute I stopped asking that question the suffering got 80% better.
0: Wow. You know what, uh, Kristen, your story is so powerful and I want to give it justice. I think that what we are going to look forward to is a part two where you tell us maybe in more detail what those two years of healing look like because we, I want the listeners to understand uh, because so much of us are looking for uh, a quick fix and the debilitating uh, effects that you experience with Lyme disease, some of them happened overnight, but the the kind of all over mountain of them took a while to develop and to uncover it layer by layer and to really uh, understand how to eat how to think which I think what is the most powerful thing is what you just said that once you stop asking why am I still suffering not really I don't know if we would call it accepting the suffering but once you stop kind of questioning it almost felt like the suffering was lessened or was removed and so I want to do this um, I want to give this the, the proper time that it needs because I know that your story is going to help people out there. And I want you to uh, tell us about the book that you wrote just to tell us the name and how to get to it. But then we're going to do a part two.
1: Okay. Sounds cool. Happy to do that. So I wrote a book last year. Um, It's an ebook and it's called life after Lyme revive your inner rock star and achieve a full recovery because Mm -hmm. that's, the goal that I have for myself and for all of my patients who come to me now with complex, chronic, mysterious medical illness, which I would classify Lyme as, you know, it's not, as I explained in my book, it's, it's never just Lyme. If you're super sick, it's not just Lyme. It's immune dysfunction. It's, you know, it's, it's eating foods that dismantle your gut. It's you know, having mold in your basement. It's having thoughts that dismantle your belief in your ability to, to move forward. It's having relationships that are toxic. It's might be some more co-infections or parasites or whatever, right? Like my job is really a detective to try to figure out what in this person at this time is creating symptoms because, you know, the body's not doing what it does best, which is heal itself. So I put everything I tell patients into that book. It was a labor of love. It took me six months And everything I've ever told um, someone who's come to me with these symptoms or with a concern for Lyme is in that book, hopefully in a stepwise, you know, easy to digest way. I tried to make it as readable for someone whose brain's not working like mine wasn't working to manage as possible. Um, But yeah, they can get that on my website, which is kristenrymanmd.com, or they can um, also just go to lifeafterlime.net and find it there.
0: Okay, and we'll put all of that in the um, podcast notes. So um, anyone who's listening who wants to learn more about her recovery process and possibly begin your own recovery process can get the book and go to her website and listen to part two of Life After Lime. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ryman.
1: You're welcome. So happy to be here. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Like us on Facebook at Uninhibited Podcast. You can join our conversation offline through Facebook with Uninhibited Podcast or on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. And a special shout out to Trap Quilo for the music